Welcome to Season 3 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from the four volumes In Defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. Podcast 57 is entitled We Are Seven, based on a poem by William Wordsworth. Welcome to another podcast from Poets Corner. The romantic poet William Wordsworth captures the simple faith of a child in his moving poem, We Are Seven. A little girl of eight is confronted by a cynical adult about the issue of death. The little girl lost her brother and sister. She visits the cemetery regularly. She, of course, knows they are buried in the churchyard, but does not accept the fact that they no longer exist. The stranger tries to explain to her about the finality of death, but neither can comprehend the other. Linda will read the poem followed by my commentary. The poem is in first-person point of view, told by the philosophical stranger who interviews the little girl. A simple child that lightly draws its breath and fills its life in every limb. What should it know of death? Two worlds collide. The adult, though perhaps not without a nebulous faith in God, is distracted by books. He represents those who look to science for answers about death. But the little girl, who knows nothing of science, looks to her heart. She is full of life and instantly assumes that her two siblings, who have passed, still have life in them. She visits the gravesite as if they are alive and finds joy in their company. To the stranger, the little girl is much like a creature of nature, innocent and charming, but clueless about reality. I met a little cottage girl. She was eight years old, she said. Her hair was thick with many a curl that clustered round her head. She had a rustic woodland air, and she was wildly clad. Her eyes were fair and very fair. Her beauty made me glad. On the one hand, the adult is taken by the beauty of innocence, as if she perhaps reminds him of his own youth. On the other hand, the adult, of course, is too sophisticated to accept the idea that family life continues after death. He sees the little girl is superstitious, unschooled, and therefore unintelligent. He is like the nurse in one of the most famous of Wordsworth's poems, Ode Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. In the poem, the nurse sees it as her duty to destroy the simple faith of her protege. In Wordsworth's words, The homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child, her inmate man, forget the glories he hath known in that imperial palace whence he came. Sisters and brothers, little maid, how many may you be? How many? Seven in all, she said, and wonderingly looked at me. And where are they, I pray you tell? She answered, Seven are we, and two of us at Conway dwell, and two are gone to sea. Two of us in the churchyard lie, my sister and my brother, And in the churchyard cottage I dwell near them with my mother. The callous cynic does the math. You say that two at Conway dwell, and two are gone to sea? Yet ye are seven, I pray you tell, sweet maid, how this may be. It appears as if he is mocking the little eight-year-old, but to give him the benefit of the doubt, let's just take it as a simple question. Rather than mocking the little girl, he is confused at her answer. In fairness to the adult, he is not an atheist. He accepts heaven, but he denies the eternal bonds of family. He denies any communication between the two worlds. Heaven is for him an abstraction, something that exists only after this life. He does not see it as a celestialized version of life on earth. 
He wants to teach the little girl his version of reality, for he thinks hers is flawed. Then did the little maid reply, Seven boys and girls are we. Two of us in the churchyard lie beneath the churchyard tree. There is no mystery to the little girl. Her answer is as straightforward as his math. It doesn't compute with her that death separates people who love each other. But the pessimist is determined to educate the little girl, not out of cruelty, but out of duty. Though he doesn't seem to have adopted the modern scientific belief that God is dead and science contains all the answers, yet to him death is an abstraction that forever separates loved ones. He genuinely wants to enlighten the little girl and free her from religious superstition. If one steps back from the poem, it is a satire on the modern world and the split between science and religion. Modern science has adopted the idea that religious superstition is harmful and must be educated out of all children. It assumes that they will be happier if they are more enlightened. But we must remember that Wordsworth is a romantic and does not adopt the scientific attitude. In Ode, Intimations of Immortality, Wordsworth laments the loss of innocence. The following stanza from the controversial poem expresses his views. I'll ask Linda to read it to us. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy, shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. But he beholds the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. The youth, who daily farther from the east must travel, still is nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. Wordsworth, criticized for his romantic beliefs, was asked by the clergy of his day, who did not accept the idea of a premortal existence, to recant the poem, but he refused. In his poem, Ode, Intimations of Immortality, Wordsworth asserted the idea that we were children of God with a premortal existence. In his poem, We Are Seven, Wordsworth asserts the idea that life after death continues with the family. It is the little girl who is teaching the misanthrope. You run about, my little maid, your limbs, they are alive. If two are in the churchyard laid, then ye are only five. The supercilious pedant is correct in his math because he cannot consider the two children in the graveyard as entities. They simply no longer exist in the family unit. And to give him credit for decency, he really believes it is mentally unhealthy for the little girl to continue her fantasy. It is like a mother concerned over a child's invisible friend. But the guileless little girl is unmoved by his logic. Their graves are green. They may be seen, the little maid replied. Twelve steps or more from my mother's door, and they are side by side. Her impeccable logic is lost on the censorious cynic. To the little girl, the evidence is scientifically valid. You can see the green graves. They are only twelve steps from her mother's door. They lie side by side. What more evidence do you need? Ironically, the callous skeptic can offer no scientific evidence to support his theory. It appears as if the little girl is mocking her elder. But of course, she isn't. There's no irony in her voice. The evidence is so simple, a child can see it. Just as the disbelieving adult cannot comprehend her point of view, 
she cannot comprehend his. She offers even more evidence. My stockings there I often knit, my kerchief there I hem, and there upon the ground I sit and sing a song to them. And often after sunset, sir, when it is light and fair, I take my little porringer and eat my supper there. The little girl, of course, has an advantage over the stranger. She knew her siblings in life. She does not comprehend death, at least the kind of death that scientific skepticism displays, or even in some instances, religious skepticism. In her mind, she sees them as she remembers them. They are as much a part of the family as if they were still alive. In addition, she has a firm belief in a personal God. It is her religion that keeps her siblings alive. She sees God as merciful for relieving her sister from her pain. The first that died was Sister Jane. In bed she moaning lay, till God released her from her pain, and then she went away. In the artless innocence of childhood, she accepts God's will. The religion of science is entropy, evolution, and the laws of thermodynamics. Entropy is the reason for death. It cannot be otherwise. It is the natural order of things for order to go to disorder. That life ends in death. To hardcore science, death is final, for science has no evidence to show otherwise. Also, science thinks that life is in the body, therefore it has a beginning and ending, and science cannot account for God. Stephen Hawking, referring to a conversation between Napoleon and the famous French physicist Laplace, said, A scientific law is not a scientific law if it holds only when some supernatural being decides not to intervene. Recognizing this, Napoleon is said to have asked Laplace how God fit into this picture. Laplace replied, Sire, I have not needed that hypothesis. The word hypothesis reflects the scientific method. To science, everything begins with a hypothesis. If the hypothesis cannot be verified, it is invalid. And the hypothesis of science is that intelligent design does not exist. It eludes science that such a hypothesis can be neither verified nor falsified, and therefore temporal science has no authority in the area of life after death. But that is an argument for another day. To science there is no God. As Mr. Hawkins said, the realization that time behaves like space presents a new alternative. It removes the age-old objection to the universe having a beginning but also means that the beginning of the universe was governed by the laws of science and doesn't need to be set in motion by some god. Of course, Mr. Hawking fails to tell us how the laws of science came into being. The pure little girl, however, is not distracted by science. She is a child of nature. She enjoys nature. She does not dissect it like a frog. So in the churchyard she was laid, and when the grass was dry, Together round her grave we played, my brother John and I. John occupied the gravesite beside Jane, but the little girl remembers when she and John played together. They danced around Jane's grave and accepted the truth that Jane's spirit, though invisible, danced with them. She accepts John's death with the same naivete. And when the ground was white with snow and I could run and slide, my brother John was forced to go, and he lies by her side. The frustrated cynic fell back upon his lame logic. He again appealed to math, but the little maid could not see the connection. How many are you then, said I, if they too are in heaven? Quick was the little maid's reply. Oh, master, we are seven. In one last attempt, 
The supercilious cynic cried, But they are dead. Those two are dead. Their spirits are in heaven. The calm little girl's faith wins. She has the last word. Twas throwing words away, for still the little maid would have her will, and said, Nay, we are seven. The little girl was too young to grasp the concept that pure love binds earth and heaven, taking the sting out of death. Yet the little girl saw something the cynic could never see, the eternal nature of the family. There was nothing morbid about the little girl. She did not imagine she saw them. She did not need to see their spirits. She did not need a ghostly manifestation. They lived on in her heart. She breathed life into them. They weren't just part of her memory. They were part of her soul, and she simply accepted the fact that what was bound on earth would also be bound in heaven by love. We have all lost loved ones. Perhaps it would be well for us to remember these words. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Isaiah 11, 5-6 Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast. In Defense of Christianity is available at RonaldMesser.com.